Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I remember meeting my son at the edge of the high school soccer field. His team had just suffered a disappointing loss. Uh, Now, Andrew himself had played a pretty good game on defense, and so I told him so. And yet some of his teammates had stumbled on offense, and I told him that too. I said, you know, like Zach missed several shots on goal, and Rashad should have been passing the ball more than he he did. And in the the midst of my post-game analysis, my son cut me off. He didn't want me dissing his friends. This is a cardinal rule among good athletes. You, You win or you lose as a team. Okay, so you don't go pointing your finger at other team members when you've suffered a a, a loss. You evaluate your own performance. What was your responsibility on the team? Now, this, this rule not only applies to sports teams, it applies to the most basic team in life, a team that every one of us is part of, and that is the family team. The family team. We, we have a tendency to point our finger at other family members because of what they've done to us or what they've not done for us. But the question is, what is our responsibility? What's my responsibility on my family team? Okay, we know that families leave an indelible mark on our lives. That's what sociologists tell us, for good or for bad. But did you know you you also have an opportunity to leave an indelible mark on the lives of your family members? So what kind of a mark do you want to leave? Welcome to week four of a five-part series called That's Gonna Leave a Mark. We've been talking about the impact that God wants us to have in our world. Okay, every one of us. The impact starts on our own character. We covered that week one of the series on our culture, on our church. And today's topic is the mark that we want to leave on our family. So if we want to leave a mark on our family, we got to stop blaming other members of the team. we got to start taking seriously our own contribution to the team's success. Our text for today is Ephesians chapter 5, so I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. You'll find it in the middle of your New Testament. And while you're turning, let me give you some historical background, some context to this book, this New Testament epistle. Written by the Apostle Paul around AD 60, uh, Paul is writing to a group of people that he knows very well. They're his his buddies. He's led many of them into a relationship with Christ. Uh, He's the guy who started the church in their hometown of Ephesus. He actually pastored that church for almost three years. So on the one hand, he's writing to people he knows very well, and yet interestingly, the the letter opens without the typical warm greeting that Paul puts at the beginning of his epistles. And a Bible scholar surmised that that this is because uh, Ephesians is intended to be a circular letter. So it starts with his friends in Ephesus, but then the letter is to be passed around to other groups of Christ followers, uh, many of which Paul uh, did not know so that they could get the instruction from Paul themselves. So it's a circular letter, but it does begin in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the most prominent city in ancient Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. It was located uh, on a harbor that led eventually to the Aegean Sea. There was a little waterway that took you out to the sea. 
So there was a lot of trade that went on in the city. In fact, it was located at the crossroads of some trade routes. So this was a hustling, bustling place. And as a result, it was, it was a wicked city like uh, most cities are. It had its share of greediness and idolatry and sexual immorality and, uh, and you name it, you could find it there, which was a hardship on family life. You know, it was difficult for your family to thrive, you know, even survive in an environment like that. So Paul devotes a large chunk of this New Testament epistle to addressing families. And it's interesting the way in which Paul does it. He addresses each member of the family in turn. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to address first husbands and then wives and then children and finally parents. And I'm going to give each group a word, a single word that comes out of the text, comes out of Ephesians. Now, just a warning ahead of time. No fair listening to the words that are directed to other family members and saying, I hope they're getting this. Okay, none of this finger pointing at other members of the team. Like, you know, is she listening? Well, the question is, are you listening? All right, are you picking up the word that God has for you? Now, the number uh, one group we're going to address are husbands, and Paul spends most of his time with husbands and wives, so that's where most of our time is going to be devoted. A word to husbands, here it is. The word is love. If you're a husband here, I want you to say that word with me. Here we go. Husbands, love. Your wives were disappointed if that's the best you could do, all right? So if you're, if you're watching at home, you got to do this too, all right? If you're a husband, the word is love. Say it. Love. All right, a little bit better. Pick it up at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Now we're going to skip a few verses, drop down to verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, what's the word that the Apostle Paul gives husbands? Love. Husbands are told to love their wives four times in these verses. In fact, if you're a husband, you got a Bible with you, mark it up. Okay, one time in verse 25, twice in verse 28, a fourth time in verse 33. Just a side note here. Paul has three times as much to say in this passage to husbands than he says to wives. Now, the reason I point that out is that Paul sometimes gets a bad rap as a male chauvinist. He's so tough on women. Oh, really? Because let me tell you, he does some man-to-man butt-kicking in this epistle. And it's very surprising given the culture in which Paul lived. See, household instructions were common in the ancient world. We find them in secular literature of the day. But secular family rules were always directed to children and wives. Because they were the ones who had duties in the home. But husbands, dads, well, other than the responsibility to put a roof over the head and food on the table, they were free to do as they please. But Paul was having none of that. 
Paul gives husbands a huge responsibility. They are to love their wives. And Paul gets very explicit about this word love here. He wants us to understand what it means. And so he gives us three directives. Okay, this is what love looks like, Paul says. And the first one is this. What what does Paul, Paul say about love? What does love mean? It means to serve your wife sacrificially, guys. To serve her sacrificially. Look again at verse 25. Paul says, husbands are to love their wives. This is unbelievable. The standard, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And gave himself up for, you you talk about the gold standard for love, it's Jesus. See, when Jesus saw how our sins had cut us off from a relationship with God, Jesus left the comfort of heaven. He laid it aside and he, he came to earth as one of us, beginning as a baby in Bethlehem, growing up to lay down his life on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. Now, most husbands will never be called upon to give up their lives for their wives. But men, what are we prepared to sacrifice? Okay, what are we prepared to sacrifice? Uh, Dr. Robert McQuilkin was the president, successful president, of a college for a number of years. In fact, under his leadership, the college enrollment doubled in size. But then his wife, Muriel, got Alzheimer's disease. And uh, one of the... uh, byproducts of the Alzheimer's is that whenever he left home to go to work, she was extremely frightened. She would get frantic. And so his friends said, you know, it's time to put Muriel in a home, in an institution where she could be cared for. And McWilkin thought about it, and he said, no, that's my job. And so he resigned his post. Eight years early before retirement, he left his position, his career that he loved so much to care for his wife. Now, that's love. But, but even that illustration sets the bar pretty high. So husbands, what, what comparatively small sacrifices are we willing to make for the sake of our wives? Okay, what are we willing to give up in order to serve them? Would we give up a few hours of sports TV to take them shopping? You know, would we give up some post dinner, internet, surfing in order to do the dishes? Would we give up a game of pickleball with a friend to start painting the living room? Would we give up our vacation plans, what we want to do, in order to go where our wife would like to go? Uh, I'll tell you a real tough one for me. I love to read, and I love to read undisturbed. And for some reason, that's the time that Sue would like to play a game, or she would like to Zoom call her sibs, or she would like me to vacuum the main floor of the house. And for me to close the book and put it down and serve my wife, but that's love. That's love as Paul defines it here in Ephesians. Serve her sacrificially. Here's a second picture of love. You look out for her spiritual interests. And once again, Jesus is the role model for husbands in this regard. Go back to verses 26 and 27. How does Jesus demonstrate his love for his followers, for his church? Paul says he makes us holy. He he washes us with his word. He develops within us a character that's radiant. You see that verse 27? Unblemished by sin. 
Now, Paul's not saying here that husbands can do the exact same things, spiritually speaking, for their wives that Christ does for the church. However, Paul is hinting at the fact that husbands should be concerned about their wives' spiritual interests. It's not enough to look out for her material interests, providing her with clothes or new kitchen cabinets or nice vacations. That's relatively easy to do. It's much harder to make sure that her spiritual needs are being addressed. And husbands, are we allowing our wives to do all the spiritual heavy lifting in our homes? You know, are we expecting them to be the initiators when it comes to reading the Bible as a family or going to church or joining a community group or, or praying together as a couple? You know, maybe your wife is further down the road in terms of a relationship with Jesus than, than you are, but that is no excuse to spiritually check out. You know, we love our wives by looking out for their spiritual interests and, I would say, for the spiritual interests of our kids, which is near and dear to our wives' heart. Here's a third demonstration of love. You do for her what you would do for yourself. You do for her what you would do for yourself. After Paul repeatedly tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves us, he decides to lower the bar a bit. You know, he gives us guys an easier standard to live up to. Two times in this passage, Paul says, husbands, love your wives in the same way, listen, in the same way you love yourselves. In the same way you love, you see that in verse 28? Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Then again, in the second half of verse 33, drop down a couple verses, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. Now, men, this is, I mean, this is really, really basic. What, what do we like to do for ourselves? We should do similar things for our wives. So do you like living in a clean house? Okay, then pick up a dust rag or a vacuum and Start picking up the clothes you leave on the floor and you, 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 you clean up. Do we like to hang out with friends? Like to be with our buds? Well, our wife would probably like some social engagement as well. So we make a date night. Even in the midst of a pandemic, you find something you, you could do. Or at least you free her up and you cover the home front so she could go hang with her girlfriends. You know, do, do we like having our wives company when we're running errands? You like someone in the seat beside you in the car? Well, maybe she'd like some company. So you join her when she goes shopping. And I can't believe I just said that because I hate shopping. <laughs> but you get the picture. You see how this works. It's so simple. You, know, you just take a moment to reflect on what you do for yourself and you do it for your wife. You know, pre-COVID, uh, Sue and I used to like to work out at the gym, and then COVID hit, and they closed the gym, and uh, you know, we started working out in the basement, and that was okay for me because for cardio, I hit the, uh, uh, the treadmill, and we already owned a treadmill, but Sue likes to get her cardio on an elliptical machine, and so I told her, you know, being the tender-hearted guy that I am, well, figure out the treadmill, honey. <sighs> Ouch. What would I do for me? if I wanted an elliptical machine. Well, we bought an elliptical machine. And I'll tell you, I love watching her work out on the elliptical. And you could take that any way you want to take it. Okay. <laughs> so, 
Husbands, if we want to live, leave a positive mark on our wives, our word is love. Love. Sue and I just finished reading a book out loud uh, to each other. We like to read out loud to each other. And we just finished a memoir of a small town doctor. The book is called The Best Medicine. And I highly recommend it. A friend recommended it to us. It was uh, just an amusing read about Dr. Walt Larimore, who spent 40 years as a small town doctor. But at the beginning of his practice, he realized that he didn't know much about the business side of things. So he went looking for a mentor, some business dude who could you know, coach him with respect to the business side of his medical practice. Now, he was also a relative relatively new Christ follower, relatively new uh, a father at the time. So he thought, you know, if I could find a guy who's a businessman, uh, you know, a good dad, a Christ follower, and he, some of his friends said, check out Bill Judge. Bill, he kept hearing this name, Bill Judge. So he called Bill Judge, and Bill was a cattleman, successful cattleman at the time, had raised five daughters, was a leader in his church, and had already mentored a number of younger dudes. And so they got together for breakfast at the local diner, and Bill said, yeah, I would do, do this. I'd mentor you, but there are some requirements. He said, we're going to meet on Tuesday mornings at 5.30 a.m. And he said, one Tuesday a month, I want you to bring your calendar with you, okay? And we're going to take a look at how you're spending your time. We're going to do that every month. And one Tuesday a month, I want you to bring your checkbook and your credit card statement. We're going to take a look at how you're spending your money and whether you're saving and if you're giving generously to the Lord's work. We're going to drill down into that. And then one Tuesday a month, listen to this, one Tuesday we're going to talk about your relationship with your wife. Are you loving her? Are you cherishing her? Are you nourishing her? And he said, I want your permission before we meet on that Tuesday each month to call her on the phone and ask her her perspective on how you're doing in that regard. I thought to myself, I'm so sorry I have my wife reading this book. You know, Wow, that's accountability. But you know, God tells us to love our wives, husbands. And we're accountable to him ultimately. Are we doing the job? That's our word, love. Okay, number two, a word for wives. The word is support. If you're a wife, say support with me. Here we go. Support. Okay, and you got to do that like you mean it. One more time. Support. Now, the word support doesn't appear in our English translation of Ephesians 5, but there are two other words that are directed to wives in this passage, and I decided to combine them together to come up with a single word, and the word is support. But let's take a look at the, the two words that are in the text. The first one is found in verses 22 and 24, and it's the word submit. Okay, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Drop down a couple verses to verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, before we take a look at the second word that's addressed to wives, some clarification regarding the word submit is necessary because I've discovered in Christian circles, this word is, is oftentimes misunderstood and sometimes abused. Abused, And so it wouldn't surprise me a bit if, uh, you know, submit meets with immediate resistance from some of you who are married women. You know, let me tell you what submit does not mean. Okay, several things that submit does not mean. It, it is not something that could be required upon demand. 
Can't be required upon demand. Please note that the Apostle Paul does not tell husbands to demand submission from their wives. Far from it. You know, this word submit is directed to the wives themselves, which was pretty unusual in Paul's day because women in ancient times were not treated like free moral agents who had the right to make their own decisions. But that's exactly Paul's approach here. He's asking wives to choose to submit. And so any husband who uses the S word like a sledgehammer, well, your job is to submit, is out of line. Second, clarification here. Submit doesn't doesn't reflect inferiority of any kind on the part of wives. I mean, who's the role model in the Bible when it comes to submission? Do you know? Call it out if you know. Who's the role model? Exactly, it's Jesus. Even though Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, he's equal in deity to the Father. Jesus submits to his father's leadership. So submission is not about personal worth. It's about personal roles. See, in a family, God's word calls husbands to a special leadership role. And please remember, you know, the kind of leadership we're talking about is not demanding your own way. It's not having the final say on decisions. You you lead how, guys? By loving your wife you know, in ways that we've already described today. So a godly wife chooses to support her husband in this servant leadership role. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But a side note here. Uh, Occasionally, people will ask me, actually somewhat frequently, they'll ask me, but isn't submission a two-way street? I mean, aren't husbands supposed to submit to wives even as wives submit to husbands? And the answer is no. You know, you won't find a single verse in the Bible that tells husbands to submit to their wives. But at least half a dozen times, wives are asked to submit to their husbands. Why? Why why is this one directional? Because it's got nothing to do with a good attitude or a servant spirit or it has to do with a role. And the husband's servant leadership role is a difficult role. If you're going to love your wife like Christ loves the church... And so Paul is asking wives, please support your husbands in this role. You get it? Good. Third clarification. To submit is not blind obedience to a husband's wishes. You know, a wife's primary obedience is to God. So if her husband asks her to do something that is contrary to the clear teaching of God's word, if he asks her, well, we're going to fudge the numbers here on our tax return, or he asks her to allow pornography in the home, or to stop going to church, or or to put up with his alcohol uh, addiction, a wife should refuse. Several months ago, Our elders asked a Christian counselor to come in and do some training with us. Uh, One of the things that we we face a fair amount of as we uh, interact with families and marriages is marital abuse. And so we wanted some training. And so this counselor came in and did a Zoom seminar for two, three hours. And as I was listening to example after example of marital abuse, I noticed a trend. And so I interrupted the counselor and I said, now, wait a second. All of your examples are of husbands abusing wives. Don't wives abuse husbands? And there was a pause. And then the counselor said, well, actually, no. It's not been our experience in all the counseling we've done. 
It tends to be one directional. Husbands abusing wives sexually, physically, emotionally, verbally, financially. Husbands abusing wives. Wives, your support of your husband's leadership does not mean that you're supposed to put up with abuse. Never. Never. You know, submit is a positive word. God wants you to get behind, support your husband's servant leadership. It's not a negative word requiring you to be a doormat. Now, this would be a good time to throw in the second word that Paul directs to wives in Ephesians 5. Drop down to verse 33, second half of the verse. And wife, the wife must respect her husband. Respect. So my question of wives is this, would your husband say, would your husband say that he feels respected by you? Now, some of you might object with, well, I will start respecting him as soon as he starts acting respectable. <laughs> but you don't want to go there because you don't want the shoe on the other foot. Do you? your, your husband is instructed to love you. What if he said, I'll start loving her as soon as she acts lovable? You, 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 husbands, you don't wait for your wife to be lovable to love her. Your command from God's word is you're to love her. And wives, you don't start supporting your husband and treating him with respect once he acts respectable. You do it even when he acts like a jerk. So re remember the opening illustration today about team members who are pointing the finger at others, you know, what they should be doing on the team. Well, on the family team, we've got our own job to do, each of us. And wives, I've combined submit and respect in Ephesians 5 into one word that I think addresses the, uh, the essence of submit and respect, and it's the word support. Support your husband. Now, how do you do that? Well, here, here's an interesting insight I picked up from a, uh, from a crazy source. Okay, I was reading several years ago an article in the Harvard Business Review. All right, and the article, can't remember the title, but the article had to do with the responsibility of uh, someone who's working under, uh, under a leader at work to support that person and had to do with the benefits of managing up. And, and the counterintuitive part of this piece was we typically think about managing as managing down. If you're a leader, you manage people under you. You don't think about, you know, if you're a support person managing up. But the article said, if you want an enjoyable workplace, if you want a, you know, vital and robust workplace, then learn how to manage up. What does that mean? Well, according to the article, you start asking yourself, you know, in what ways is the person I work for, in what ways are they stressed? You know, what has built up on their desk? What work is getting backlogged? Who, who on the team here is making life difficult for them? What other employees are bucking up? You know, what would put wind in my supervisor's cell? What can I do to help this person out? Now, what if a wife asks these questions about her husband? What if she asks the question, what's stressing him out? You know, what's building up, not on his desk, but maybe his workbench at home by way of household chores? You know, which of the kids is bucking up against his leadership right now, making life difficult for him as a dad? You know, what would put wind in his sails? How can I be a help? You see how this works? 
You know, if I could brag on my wife for just a moment, Sue is so good at this, support. And I'll give you an example of a good, uh, big way in which she, she does it, a small way in which she does it, j- just so you got, you know, primes the pump a little bit here. You know, a big way. I like to process stuff out loud. I need to process stuff out loud. When I come home from a day at work, I need somebody to talk to and to ask good questions and to be a sounding board. And Sue has been doing that for several decades in my life, put in more hours than most professional therapists. But that's how she supports me. Okay, that's a big thing for me. I couldn't do without it. Small example of of how she does it. Sue knows that a major stress reliever in my life is to get outdoors. And it doesn't matter how cold it is. I love tromping through the woods in the middle of of winter. And one of my favorite paths runs right along the river. But unfortunately, once the snow gets packed down, it forms uh, an ice crust and it's treacherous to walk there. And so just a, a week or so ago, Sue went online and she ordered us both yak tracks. You ever see these? You strap them to the bottom of your feet and they dig into the ice. It's wonderful. So we continue to spend a lot of time on trails. Just day before yesterday, Morton Arboretum, tromping through the woods in our yak tracks. So the word, wives, is support. What could you do to get behind your husband in this way? Now, third word, a word for children. Okay, husband's word, love. Wife's word, support. Children's word, obey. Now, unfortunately, I'm running out of sermon time here, so I've got to be really, really brief with a word for children and then a word for parents, and Paul is actually really brief in in this epistle, but at least I'm going to get you thinking here. And if you want to read more, best book I've read in recent days, brand new book out there called The Storm-Tossed Family. So if you want a book that covers the marriage relationship, the parenting relationship, it's it's pretty comprehensive. It's not a long book, but uh, just excellent book with a lot of good information. So here's the word for children. And by children, I mean anybody living under the roof of your parents, whether you're a tot or a teen or a 20-something Uh, The word is obey, obey. And it's actually one of two words that Paul addresses to children in this book of Ephesians. So we have finished with chapter five. Let's move ahead into chapter six, beginning at verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. So the main word... The main word for children in these verses is obey. Obey. Do what your parents ask you to do. Now, that's a pretty straightforward word. But but, but Paul adds a second word for children in these verses, and it's the word honor. And honor is the attitude. Honor is the demeanor with which a child is to obey his or her parents. Okay, Honor is the demeanor with which a child obeys. It means to obey without arguing. It means to obey without rolling your eyes. It means to obey without dissing your parents' rules to your friends. It means to obey without a half-hearted effort, but a full-hearted effort. Honor. You know, to honor means to hold someone in high regard, in high esteem. So if you're still living under your parents' roof, do you obey them in a way that communicates, Mom, Dad, you're the best. You're the best. Now, some of you are thinking, uh, Pastor Jim, you are asking way too much. 
Okay, it's one thing to ask you know, me to obey my parents, and now, now I'm supposed to obey them as if they're, they're the best, obey them with, with honor. Give me one good reason why I should do that. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates your objection because he gives you not one reason, he gives you three reasons. So let's take a look at the three reasons for obeying with honor. Reason number one, it's the right thing to do. Okay, verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is, say it with me, Right. This is right. Remember when we used to use that popular expression, that is so wrong. <laughs> Remember saying that? You see a, a, an overweight guy in a Speedo? That is so wrong. All right? Or your friend says, hey, can we add anchovies to this pizza? That is so wrong. Okay? Paul says, children who disobey their parents, that is so wrong. So, so wrong. You know, it's, it's wrong in the sense that it's contrary to Christ-like character being formed in you. It's wrong in the sense that it creates tension in your home. It's wrong in that it will lead you to make bad decisions. It's wrong for the way in which it undermines healthy authority structure in your culture. Obeying your parents is the right thing to do. Reason number two. It's one of God's top 10 commandments. It's one of God's top 10 commandments. You know what number it is? Okay, it's number five. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. Ancient Jews believed that the uh, 10 commandments were arranged on two stone tablets, evenly divided, five on one, five on the other. So uh, number five, obey your parents, is at the end of the commandments on tablet one. Tablet one deals with... Uh, Commandments that address our relationship with God. The first four all deal with how we treat God. It's the second tablet that deals with how we treat others. So obey and honor your parents goes with the commandments addressing your relationship with God. In other words, how we respond to our parents has a huge impact on our relationship with God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord, in the Lord. So if you're still living with your parents, there is no way, there is no way you can follow Christ while disobeying mom and dad. You want a good relationship with your, you know, with your God, then you got to obey your parents. Reason number three, it's rewarded. It's rewarded by God. According to verses 2 and 3, this is the only commandment of the top 10 that's accompanied by a promise. And and the promise is long life. Now, please understand, this does not mean that, you know, if you're an obedient child, you will automatically live to a ripe old age. There are certainly cases where wonderful obedient children die young, but this is a general principle that Paul is unfolding here, and the principle, principle is God rewards obedience. You know, God rewards children who clean up their room when mom says, clean up your room. God rewards children who disengage from friendships that their parents say, you know, I'm uneasy about that friendship and its influence in your life. God obeys children who get home at 10.59 when dad says the curfew is 11 o'clock. And conversely, God opposes children who disobey their parents. So children's word, obey. And by the way, just a side note here to moms and dads. 
Don't settle for less than obedience. Okay, if you think that you're doing your kids a favor because by demanding uh, obedience, they're going to throw a fit, cause a scene, or or now they're a teenager and you think by letting things ride, you're going to be their friend, you are doing them a great disservice. Again, note the relationship between obeying you and obedience to God. This is what you want to cultivate in your kids. So let me give a word. Number four, a word to parents. And the word is nourish. And we are down to the last verse in today's scripture passage. It's verse four of chapter six. Fathers, and by the way, that title includes both dads and moms. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, some of you, you're looking at this verse and you're wondering how I got nourish out of it for parents. Well, the phrase bring them up in the original Greek text means to feed or to nourish. In fact, it's the very same word that Paul uses a few verses earlier, end of chapter five, verse 29, when he's addressing husbands, telling them to love their wives by feeding and caring for them as they do for their, their own selves. So the word means to nourish. Now, moms and dads, we're not talking here about physical nourishment, physical food. We're talking about spiritual food, which is obvious from the last phrase in verse 4. He talks about the training and instruction of the Lord. Did you know this is your responsibility, moms and dads? to nourish your kids in God's word. This is not primarily the responsibility of the children's ministry at Christ Community Church or the student's ministry at Christ Community Church. This is your job. This is not primarily the responsibility of the Christian school you're paying for your child to go to. This is your job. I love the cartoon in a Christian magazine. This young man is being led off in handcuffs by the police. It's a crime scene. And the, the mom is wailing, my son, my son, where did your youth pastor go wrong? <laughs> yeah, you get it. It wasn't the youth pastor's job. It was mom's job, dad's job, to nourish with God's word. You know, my observation these days is that Christian parents are knocking themselves out to serve their kids And so all day long, they're working a job, maybe two jobs to pay the bills, and they're spending time online in the midst of COVID doing online schoolwork. They're taxing their kids here and there and everywhere. They're supporting them in music and in drama and sports, and they go to bed exhausted. And let me tell you, if you go to bed exhausted after serving your kids and you've done everything possible with the exception of nourishing them with God's word, you've missed the most important thing. See, when you nourish them with God's word, when you talk about you read God's word together, and then you talk about it, and you say, how are we going to apply this? And you let them help you apply it to your life, too. You take some shots. Think of having God on your team in raising your kids. Now his word is teaching them how to control their temper and how to resist temptation and how to manage money and how to control their mouth and you know, how, to, how to build good friendships wisely and how to care for the poor and how to reverence God. And it's all there in God's book. Now, let me say, we want to help you. We want to come alongside you, but the primary responsibility is yours. So we're going to do everything possible. We've put together a Bible-savvy reading schedule, not only for adults, but we got a kid's version, a kid's journal called Epic. 
You know, we've got in-person services going on right now for kids, both children and for middle school and high school students. If you'll just get them here. We've got online stuff available out the wazoo for kids. Oh, we got so much stuff. Just check it out. We got all sorts of serving opportunities so your kids can learn how to serve alongside of you. But you've got to take the initiative. And I know you're tired. And I know um, this season of pandemic is difficult. But my hope and my prayer for you is that you'll step up because your kids need you to nourish them with God's word. You get it? Good. Let me pray for you, okay? God, as we wrap things up, how could we possibly do this job apart from your help? In fact, what would motivate us? What would motivate us to want to leave a positive mark on our family? It could only be that we are so grateful for the way in which you've left your mark on us the way in which you laid aside your glory in heaven to become one of us and serve us. And you are our role model, but you also come to live inside us by your spirit. You're not just our role model. You're the motivation. You're the power. You're the resource we draw upon, God. And in the midst of this pandemic time when parents are so exhausted, when husbands and wives have had more spats than usual because they're living under the same roof more hours in a day, at a time when... Living with fellow sinners under the same roof is increasingly difficult. We throw ourselves upon you and say, God, would you help us? Would you forgive us, God? There's probably some confessing that needs to be done in families today to each other to say, you know, I've not been the husband that I should be, but I want to be. Or I've not been the son, the daughter that I should be, or the parent or the wife, but I want to be with God's help. So God, give us the humility to acknowledge where we've fallen down, to receive your forgiveness, God, to understand that, you know, family family reveals the worst about every one of us. But this this is your workshop, God. And so we place ourselves under your care. We ask you to make us into the people you want us to be for the sake of the others in our family. That you'd give extra courage to those who feel beaten down right now because maybe they're, they're the only one in their family who wants to take something like this teaching seriously. Well, then God help them to stand and to stand alone and not point their finger at other members of the team, but say, with God's help, this is what I'm going to do on the family team. We need your help. We call out to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.